Essays in Experimental Logic by John Dewey. Chapter 1 Introduction Sections 1 through 4. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The key to understanding the doctrine of the essays which are herewith reprinted lies in the passages regarding the temporal development of experience. Setting out from a conviction, more current at the time when the essays were written than it is now, that knowledge implies judgment, and hence thinking, the essays try to show, one, that such terms as thinking, reflection, judgment, denote inquiries or the results of inquiry, and two, that inquiry occupies an intermediate and mediating place in the development of an experience. If this be granted, it follows at once that a philosophical discussion of the distinctions and relations which figure most largely in logical theories depends upon a proper placing of them in their temporal context, and that, in default of such placing, we are prone to transfer the traits of the subject matter of one phase to that of another, with a confusing outcome. Section 1. An intermediary stage for knowledge, that is, for knowledge comprising reflection and having a distinctively intellectual quality, implies a prior stage of a different kind, a kind variously characterized in the essays as social, affectional, technological, aesthetic, etc. It may most easily be described from a negative point of view. It is a type of experience which cannot be called a knowledge experience without doing violence to the term knowledge and to experience. It may contain knowledge resulting from prior inquiries. It may include thinking within itself, but not so that they dominate the situation and give it its peculiar flavor. Positively, anyone recognizes the difference between an experience of quenching thirst, where the perception of water is a mere incident, and an experience of water where knowledge of what water is, is the controlling interest. Or between the enjoyment of social converse among friends, and a deliberate study made of the character of one of the participants between aesthetic appreciation of a picture and an examination of it by a connoisseur to establish the artist or by a dealer who has a commercial interest in determining its probable selling value the distinction between the two types of experience is evident to anyone who will take the trouble to recall what he does most of the time when not engaged in meditation or inquiry but since one does not think about knowledge except when he is thinking except, that is, when the intellectual or cognitional interest is dominant. The professional philosopher is only too prone to think of all experiences, as if they were of the type he is specially engaged in, and hence unconsciously or intentionally to project its traits into experiences to which they are alien. Unless he takes the simple precaution of holding before his mind contrasting experiences like those just mentioned, he generally forms a habit of supposing that no qualities or things at all are present in experience, except as objects of some kind of apprehension or awareness. Overlooking, and afterward denying, that things and qualities are present to most men, most of the time, as things and qualities in situations, of prizing and aversion, of seeking and finding, of converse, enjoyment, and suffering, of production and employment, of manipulation and destruction. He thinks of things as either totally absent from experience, or else there as objects of consciousness or knowing. 
this habit is a tribute to the importance of reflection and of the knowledge which accrues from it but a discussion of knowledge perverted at the outset by such a misconception is not likely to proceed prosperously all this is not to deny that some element of reflection or inference may be required in any situation to which the term experience is applicable in any way which contrasts with say the experience of an oyster or a growing bean vine men experience illness what they experience is certainly something very different from an object of apprehension yet it is quite possible that what makes an illness into a conscious experience is precisely the intellectual elements which intervene a certain taking of some things as representative of other things my thesis about the primary character of non-reflectional experience is not intended to preclude this hypothesis which appears to me a highly plausible one but it is indispensable to note that even in such cases the intellectual element is set in a context which is non-cognitive and which holds within it in suspense a vast complex of other qualities and things that in the experience itself are objects of esteem or aversion of decision of use of suffering of endeavor and revolt not of knowledge when in a subsequent reflective experience we look back and find these things and qualities quails would be a better word or values if the latter word were not so open to misconstruction we are only too prone to suppose that they were then what they are now objects of a cognitive regard themes of an intellectual gesture hence the erroneous conclusion that things are either just out of experience or else are more or less badly known objects in any case the best way to study the character of these cognitional factors which are merely incidental in so many of our experiences is to study them in the type of experience where they are most prominent where they dominate where knowing in short is the prime concern such study will also by a reflex reference throw into greater relief the contrasted characteristic traits of the non-reflectional types of experience in such contrast the significant traits of the latter are seen to be internal organization one the factors and qualities hang together there is a great variety of them but they are saturated with a pervasive quality being ill with the grip is an experience which includes an immense diversity of factors but nonetheless is the one qualitatively unique experience which it is philosophers in their exclusively intellectual preoccupation with analytic knowing are only too much given to overlooking the primary import of the term thing namely race an affair an occupation a cause something which is similar to having the grip or conducting a political campaign or getting rid of an overstock of canned tomatoes or going to school or paying attention to a young woman in short just what is meant in non-philosophic discourse by an experience noting things only as if they were objects that is objects of knowledge continuity is rendered a mystery qualitative pervasive unity is too often regarded as a subjective state injected into an object which does not possess it as a mental construct 
or else as a trait of being to be attained to only by recourse to some curious organ of knowledge termed intuition in like fashion organization is thought of as the achieved outcome of a highly scientific knowledge or as the result of transcendental rational synthesis or as a fiction superinduced by association upon elements each of which in its own right is a separate existence one advantage of an excursion by one who philosophizes upon knowledge into primary non-reflectional experience is that the excursion serves to remind him that every empirical situation has its own organization of a direct non-logical character two another trait of every race is that it has focus and context brilliancy and obscurity conspicuousness or apparency and concealment or reserve with a constant movement of redistribution movement about an axis persists but what is in focus constantly changes consciousness in other words is only a very small and shifting portion of experience the scope and content of the focused apparency have immediate dynamic connections with portions of experience not at the time obvious the word which i have just written is momentarily focal around it there shade off into vagueness my typewriter the desk the room the building the campus the town and so on in the experience and in it in such a way as to qualify even what is shiningly apparent are all the physical features of the environment extending out into space no one can say how far and all the habits and interests extending backward and forward in time of the organism which uses the typewriter and which notes the written form of the word only as temporary focus in a vast and changing scene i shall not dwell upon the importance of this fact in its critical bearings upon theories of experience which have been current i shall only point out that when the word experience is employed in the text it means just such an immense and operative world of diverse and interacting elements it might seem wiser in view of the fact that the term experience is so frequently used by philosophers to denote something very different from such a world to use an acknowledgedly objective term to talk about the typewriter for example but experience in ordinary usage as distinct from its technical use in psychology and philosophy expressly denotes something which a specific term like typewriter does not designate namely the indefinite range of context in which the typewriter is actually set its spatial and temporal environment including the habitudes plans and activities of its operator and if we are asked why not then use a general objective term like world or environment the answer is that the word experience suggests something indispensable which these terms omit namely the actual focusing of the world at one point in a focus of immediate shining apparency in other words in its ordinary human usage the term experience was invented and employed previously because of the necessity of having some way to refer peremptorily to what is indicated in only a roundabout and divided way by such terms as organism and environment subject and object persons and things mind and nature and so on section two had this background of the essays been more explicitly denoted 
I do not know whether they would have met with more acceptance, but it is likely that they would not have met with so many misunderstandings. But the essays, save for slight incidental references, took this background for granted, and the allusions to the universe of non-reflectional experience of our doings, sufferings, and enjoyments of the world, and of one another. It was their purpose to point out that reflection, and hence knowledge, having logical properties, arises because of the appearance of incompatible factors within the empirical situation just pointed at. Incompatible, not in a mere structural or static sense, but in an active and progressive sense. Then, opposed responses are provoked, which cannot be taken simultaneously in overt action, and which accordingly can be dealt with, whether simultaneously or successively, only after they have been brought into a plan of organized actions by means of analytic resolution and synthetic imaginative conspectus, in short, by means of being taken cognizance of. In other words, reflection appears as the dominant trait of a situation when there is something seriously the matter, some trouble due to active discordance, dissentiency, conflict among the factors of a prior non-intellectual experience, when, in the phraseology of the essays, a situation becomes tensional. Given such a situation, it is obvious that the meaning of the situation as a whole is uncertain. Through calling out two opposed modes of behavior, it presents itself as meaning two incompatible things. The only way out is through careful inspection of the situation, involving resolution into elements, and a going out beyond what is found upon such inspection to be given, to something else to get a leverage for understanding it. That is, we have A to locate the difficulty, and b. to devise a method of coping with it. Any such way of looking at thinking demands, moreover, that the difficulty be located in the situation in question, very literally, in question. Knowing always has a particular purpose, and its solution must be a function of its conditions in connection with additional ones which are brought to bear. Every reflective knowledge, in other words, has a specific task which is set by a concrete and empirical situation, so that it can perform that task only by detecting and remaining faithful to the conditions and the situation in which the difficulty arises, while its purpose is a reorganization of its factors in order to get unity. So far, however, there is no accomplished knowledge, but only knowledge coming to be, learning in the Greek conception. Thinking gets no farther, as thinking, than a statement of elements constituting the difficulty at hand, and a statement, a propounding, a proposition, of a method for resolving them. In fixing the framework of every reflective situation, this state of affairs also determines the further step which is needed, if there is to be knowledge. Knowledge in the eulogistic sense, as distinct from opinion, dogma, and guesswork, or from what casually passes current as knowledge. Overt action is demanded if the worth or validity of the reflective considerations is to be determined. Otherwise we have, at most, only a hypothesis, that the conditions of the difficulty are such and such, and that the way to go at them so as to get over or through them is thus and so. This way must be tried in action. It must be applied, physically, in the situation. By finding out what then happens, we test our intellectual findings, our logical terms or projected meets and bounds. If the required reorganization is effected, they are confirmed, 
and reflection on that topic ceases. If not, there is frustration, and inquiry continues. That all knowledge, as issuing from reflection, is experimental, in the literal physical sense of experimental, is then a constituent proposition of this doctrine. Upon this view, thinking, or knowledge-getting, is far from being the armchair thing it is often supposed to be. The reason it is not an armchair thing is that it is not an event going on exclusively within the cortex or the cortex and the vocal organs. It involves the explorations by which relevant data are procured and the physical analyses by which they are refined and made precise. It comprises readings by which information is got a hold of, the words which are experimented with, and the calculations by which the significance of entertained conceptions or hypotheses is elaborated. Hands and feet, apparatus and appliances of all kinds, are as much a part of it as changes in the brain. Since these physical operations, including the cerebral events and equipments, are a part of thinking, thinking is mental, not because of a peculiar stuff which enters into it, or of peculiar non-natural activities which constitute it, but because of what physical acts and appliances do, the distinctive purpose for which they are employed, and the distinctive results which they accomplish. That reflection terminates through a definite overt act in another non-reflectional situation within which incompatible responses may again in time be aroused, and so another problem in reflection be set goes without saying. Certain things about this situation, however, do not at the present time speak for themselves and need to be set forth. Let me in the first place call attention to an ambiguity in the term knowledge. The statement that all knowledge involves reflection, or more concretely, that it denotes an inference from evidence, gives offense to many. It seems a departure from fact, as well as a willful limitation of the word knowledge. I have in this introduction endeavored to mitigate the obnoxiousness of the doctrine by referring to knowledge which is intellectual or logical in character. Lest this expression be regarded as a futile evasion of a real issue, I shall now be more explicit. 1. It may well be admitted that there is a real sense in which knowledge, as distinct from thinking or inquiring with a guess attached, does not come into existence till thinking has terminated in the experimental act which fulfills the specification set forth in thinking. But what is also true is that the object thus determined is an object of knowledge only because of the thinking which has preceded it, and to which it sets a happy term. To run against a hard and painful stone is not, of itself, I should say, an act of knowing. But if running into a hard and painful thing is an outcome predicted, after inspection of data and elaboration of a hypothesis, then the hardness and the painful bruise which define the thing as a stone also constitute it emphatically an object of knowledge. In short, the object of knowledge, in the strict sense, is its objective, and this objective is not constituted till it is reached. Now this conclusion, as the word denotes, is thinking brought to a close, done with. If the reader does not find this statement satisfactory, he may, pending further discussion, at least recognize that the doctrine set forth has no difficulty in connecting knowledge with inference, and at the same time admitting that knowledge in the emphatic sense does not exist till inference has ceased. Seen from this point of view, so-called immediate knowledge or simple apprehension or acquaintance knowledge represents a critical skill, a certainty of response which has accrued in consequence of reflection. 
a like sureness of footing apart from prior investigations and testings is found in instinct and habit i do not deny that these may be better than knowing but i see no reason for complicating an already too confused situation by giving them the name knowledge with its usual intellectual implications from this point of view the subject matter of knowledge is precisely that which we do not think of or mentally refer to in any way being that which is taken as matter of course but it is nevertheless knowledge in virtue of the inquiry which has led up to it two definiteness depth and variety of meaning attached to the objects of an experience just in the degree in which they have been previously thought about even when present in an experience in which they do not evoke inferential procedures at all such terms as meaning significance value have a double sense sometimes they mean a function the office of one thing representing another or pointing to it as implied the operation in short of serving as a sign in the word symbol this meaning is practically exhaustive but the terms also sometimes mean an inherent quality a quality intrinsically characterizing the thing experienced and making it worthwhile the word sense as in the phrase sense of a thing and nonsense is devoted to this use as definitely as are the words sign and symbol to the other in such a pair as import and importance the first tends to select the reference to another thing while the second names an intrinsic content in reflection the extrinsic reference is always primary the height of the mercury means rain the color of the flame means sodium the form of the curve means factors distributed accidentally in the situation which follows upon reflection meanings are intrinsic they have no instrumental or subservient office because they have no office at all they are as much qualities of the object in the situation as are red and black hard and soft square and round and every reflective experience adds new shades of such intrinsic qualifications in other words while reflective knowing is instrumental to gaining control in a troubled situation and thus has a practical or utilitarian force it is also instrumental to the enrichment of the immediate significance of subsequent experiences and it may well be that this by-product this gift of the gods is incomparably more valuable for living a life than is the primary and intended result of control essential as is that control to having a life to live words are treacherous in this field there are no accepted criteria for assigning or measuring their meanings but if one use the term consciousness to denote immediate values of objects then it is certainly true that consciousness is a lyric cry even in the midst of business but it is equally true that if someone else understands by consciousness the function of effective reflection then consciousness is a business even in the midst of writing or singing lyrics but the statement remains inadequate until we add that knowing as a business inquiry and invention as enterprises as practical acts become themselves charged with the meaning of what they accomplish as their own immediate quality there exists no disjunction between aesthetic qualities which are final yet idle and acts which are practical or instrumental the latter have their own delights and sorrows section three speaking then from the standpoint of temporal order we find reflection or thought 
occupying an intermediate and reconstructive position. It comes between a temporally prior situation and organized interaction of factors, of active and appreciative experience, wherein some of the factors have become discordant and incompatible, and a later situation, which has been constituted out of the first situation by means of acting on the findings of reflective inquiry. This final situation, therefore, has a richness of meaning, as well as a controlled character lacking to its original. By it is fixed the logical validity or intellectual force of the terms and relations distinguished by reflection. Owing to the continuity of experience, the overlapping and recurrence of like problems, these logical fixations become the greatest assistance to subsequent inquiries. They are its working means. In such future uses, they get further tested, defined, and elaborated until the vast and refined systems of the technical objects and formulae of the sciences come into existence, a point to which we shall return later. Owing to circumstances upon which it is unnecessary to dwell, the position thus sketched was not developed primarily upon its own independent account, but rather in the course of a criticism of another type of logic, the idealistic logic found in Lotze. It is obvious that the theory in question has critical bearings. According to it, reflection in its distinctions and processes can be understood only when placed in its intermediate pivotal temporal position as a process of control through reorganization of material alogical in character. It intimates that thinking would not exist, and hence knowledge would not be found in a world which presented no troubles or where there are no problems of evil. And on the other hand, that a reflective method is the only sure way of dealing with these troubles. It intimates that while the results of reflection, because of the continuity of experience, may be of wider scope than the situation which calls out a particular inquiry or invention, reflection itself is always specific in origin and aim. It always has something special to cope with, for troubles are concretely specific. It intimates also that thinking and reflective knowledge are never an end-all, never their own purpose nor justification, but that they pass naturally into a more direct and vital type of experience, whether technological or appreciative or social. This doctrine implies, moreover, that logical theory in its usual sense is essentially a descriptive study, that it is an account of the processes and tools which have actually been found effective in inquiry, comprising in the term inquiry both deliberate discovery and deliberate invention. Since the doctrine was propounded in an intellectual environment, where such statements were not commonplaces, where in fact the logic was reigning which challenged these convictions at every point, it is not surprising that it was put forth with a controversial coloring, being directed particularly at the dominant idealistic logic. The point of contact, and hence the point of conflict, between the logic set forth and the idealistic logic are not far to seek. The logic based on idealism had, as a matter of fact, treated knowledge from the standpoint of an account of thought, of thought in the sense of conception, judgment, and inferential reasoning. But while it had inherited this view from the older rationalism, it had also learned from Hume, via Kant, that direct sense or perceptual material must be taken into account. Hence it had, in effect, formulated the problem of logic as the problem of the connection of logical thought with sense material. 
and had attempted to set forth a metaphysics of reality based upon various ascending stages of the completeness of the rationalization or idealization of given brute fragmentary sense material by synthetic activity of thought while considerations of a much less formal kind were chiefly influential in bringing idealism to its modern vogue, such as the conciliation of a scientific with a religious and moral point of view, and the need of rationalizing social and historical institutions so as to explain their cultural effect, yet this logic constituted the technique of idealism, its strictly intellectual claim for acceptance. The point of contact, and hence of conflict, between it and such a doctrine of logic and reflective thought as is set forth above is i repeat fairly obvious both fix upon thinking as the key to the situation i still believe what i believed when i wrote the essays that under the influence of idealism valuable analyses and formulations of the work of reflective thought in its relation to securing knowledge of objects were executed but and the but is one of exceptional gravity the idealistic logic started from the distinction between immediate plural data and unifying, rationalizing meanings as a distinction ready-made in experience, and it set upon as the goal of knowledge, and hence as the definition of true reality, a complete, exhaustive, comprehensive, and eternal system in which plural and immediate data are forever woven into a fabric and pattern of self-luminous meaning. In short, it ignored the temporally intermediate and instrumental place of reflection, and because it ignored and denied this place, it overlooked its essential feature, control of the environment in behalf of human progress and well-being. The effort at control being simulated by the needs, the defects, the troubles, which accrue when the environment coerces and suppresses man, or when man endeavors in ignorance to override the environment. Hence it misconstrued the criterion of the work of intelligence. It set up as its criterion an absolute and non-temporal reality at large, instead of using the criterion of specific temporal achievement of consequences through a control supplied by reflection. And with this outcome, it proved faithless to the cause which had generated it and given it its reason for being. The magnification of the work of intelligence in our actual physical and social world for a theory which ends by declaring that everything is really and eternally thoroughly ideal and rational cuts the nerve of the specific demand and work of intelligence from this general statement let me descend to the technical point upon which turns the criticism of idealistic logic by the essays grant for a moment as a hypothesis that thinking starts neither from an implicit force of rationality desiring to realize itself completely in and through and against the limitations which are imposed upon it by the conditions of our human experience as all idealisms have taught nor from the fact that in each human being is a mind whose business it is just to know to theorize in the aristotelian sense but rather that it starts from an effort to get out of some trouble actual or menacing it is quite clear that the human race has tried many another way out besides reflective inquiry. Its favorite resort has been a combination of magic and poetry, the former to get the needed relief and control, the latter to import into imagination, and hence into emotional consummation, the realizations denied in fact. 
but as far as reflection does emerge and gets a working foothold the nature of its job is set for it on the one hand it must discover it must find out it must detect it must inventory what is there all this or else it will never know what the matter is the human being will not find out what struck him and hence will have no idea of where to seek for a remedy for the needed control on the other hand it must invent it must project it must bring to bear upon the given situation what is not as it exists given as a part of it this seems to be quite empirical and quite evident the essay submitted the thesis that this simple dichotomization of the practical situation of power and enjoyment when menaced into what is there whether as obstacle or as resource and into suggested inventions projections of something else to be brought to bear upon it ways of dealing with it is the explanation of the time-honored logical determinations of brute fact dictum and meaning or ideal quality of in more psychological terminology sense perception and conception of particulars parts fragments and universals generics and also of whatever there is of intrinsic significance in the traditional subject predicate scheme of logic it held less formally that this view explained the eulogistic connotations always attaching to reason and to the work of reason in effecting unity harmony comprehension or synthesis and to the traditional combination of a depreciatory attitude toward brute facts with a grudging conception of the necessity which thought is under of accepting them and taking them for its own subject matter and checks more specifically it is held that this view supplied and i should venture to say for the first time an explanation of the traditional theory of truth as a correspondence or agreement of existence and mind or thought it showed that the correspondence or agreement was like that between an invention and the conditions which the invention is intended to meet thereby a lot of epistemological hangers-on to logic were eliminated for the distinctions which epistemology had misunderstood were located where they belong in the art of inquiry considered as a joint process of ascertainment and invention projection or hypothesizing of which more below Section 4. The essays were published in 1903. At that time, as has been noted, idealism was in practical command of the philosophic field in both England and this country. The logics in vogue were profoundly influenced by Kantian and post-Kantian thought. Empirical logics, those conceived under the influence of Mill, still existed, but their light was dimmed by the radiance of the regnant idealism moreover from the standpoint of the doctrine expounded in the essays the empirical logic committed the same logical fault as did the idealistic in taking sense data to be primitive instead of being resolutions of the things of prior experience into elements for the aim of securing evidence while it had no recognition of the specific service rendered by intelligence in the development of new meanings and plans of new actions this state of things may explain the controversial nature of the essays and their selection in particular of an idealistic logic for animate version since the essays were written there has been an impressive revival of realism and also a development of a type of logical theory the so-called analytic logic corresponding to the philosophical aspirations of the new realism 
This marked alteration of intellectual environment subjects the doctrine of the essays to a test not contemplated when they were written. It is one thing to develop a hypothesis in view of a particular situation. It is another to test its worth in view of procedures and results having a radically different motivation and direction. It is, of course, impossible to discuss the analytic logic in this place. A consideration of how some of its main tenets compare with the conclusions outlined above will, however, throw some light upon the meaning and the worth of the latter. Although this was formulated with the idealistic and sensationalistic logics in mind, the hypothesis that knowledge can be rightly understood only in connection with considerations of time and temporal position is a general one. If it is valid, it should be readily applicable to a critical placing of any theory which ignores and denies such temporal considerations. And while I have learned much from the realistic movement about the full force of the position sketched in the essays, when adequately developed, and while later discussions have made it clear that the language employed in the essays was sometimes unnecessarily, though naturally, infected by the subjectivism of the positions against which it was directed, I find that the analytic logic is also guilty of the fault of temporal dislocation. In one respect, idealistic logic takes cognizance of a temporal contrast. Indeed, it may fairly be said to be based upon it. It seizes upon the contrast in intellectual force, consistency, and comprehensiveness between the crude or raw data with which science sets out and the defined, ordered, and systematic totality at which it aims and which, in part, it achieves. This difference is a genuine empirical difference. Idealism noted that the difference may properly be ascribed to the intervention of thinking, that thought is what makes the difference. Now since the outcome of science is of higher intellectual rank than its data, and since the intellectualistic tradition in philosophy has always identified degrees of logical adequacy with degrees of reality, the conclusion was naturally drawn that the real world absolute reality was an ideal or thought world and that the sense world the common sense world the world of actual and historic experience is simply a phenomenal world presenting a fragmentary manifestation of that thought which the process of human thinking makes progressively explicit and articulate the perception of the intellectual superiority of objects which are constituted at the conclusion of thinking over those which formed its data may fairly be termed the empirical factor in the idealistic logic. The essence of the realistic reaction, on its logical side, is exceedingly simple. It starts from those objects with which science, approved science, ends. Since they are the objects which are known, which are true, they are the real objects. That they are also objects for intervening thinking is an interesting enough historical and psychological fact, but one quite irrelevant to their natures, which are precisely what knowledge finds them to be. In the biography of human beings it may hold good that apprehension of objects is arrived at only through certain wanderings, endeavors, exercises, experiments, possibly acts called sensation, memory, reflection, may be needed by men in reaching a grasp of the objects. But such things denote facts about the history of the knower, not about the nature of the known object. Analysis will show, moreover, that any intelligible account of this history, any verified statement of the psychology of knowing, assumes objects which are unaffected by the knowing, otherwise the pretended history is merely pretense, and not to be trusted.
the history of the process of knowing moreover implies also the terms and propositions truths of logic that logic therefore be assumed as a science of objects real and true quite apart from any process of thinking them in short the requirement is that we shall think things as they are themselves not make them into objects constructed by thinking this revival of realism coincides also with an important movement in mathematics and logic the attempt to treat logical distinctions by mathematical methods while at the same time mathematical subject matter had become so generalized that it was a theory of types and orders of terms and propositions in short a logic certain minds have always found mathematics the type of knowledge because of its definiteness order and comprehensiveness the wonderful accomplishments of modern mathematics including its development into a type of highly generalized logic was not calculated to lessen the tendency and while prior philosophers have generally played their admiration of mathematics into the hands of idealism regarding mathematical subject matter as the embodiment or manifestation of pure thought the new philosophy insisted that the terms and types of order constituting mathematical and logical subject matter were real in their own right and at most merely led up to and discovered by thinking an operation moreover itself subjected as has been pointed out to the entities and relationships set forth by logic the inadequacy of this summary account may be pardoned in view of the fact that no adequate exposition is intended all that is wanted is such a statement of the general relationship of idealism to realism as may serve as the point of departure for a comparison with the instrumentalism of the essays in bare outline it is obvious that the two latter agree in regarding thinking as instrumental not as constitutive but this agreement turns out to be a formal matter in contrast with a disagreement concerning that to which thinking is instrumental the new realism finds that it is instrumental simply to knowledge of objects from this it infers with perfect correctness and inevitableness that thinking including all the operations of discovery and testing as they might be set forth in an inductive logic is a mere psychological preliminary utterly irrelevant to any conclusions regarding the nature of objects known the thesis of the essays is that thinking is instrumental to a control of the environment a control effected through acts which would not be undertaken without the prior resolution of a complex situation into assured elements and an accompanying projection of possibilities without that is to say thinking such an instrumentalism seems to analytic realism but a variant of idealism for it asserts that processes of reflective inquiry play a part in shaping the objects namely the terms and propositions which constitute the bodies of scientific knowledge now it must not only be admitted but proclaimed that the doctrine of the essays holds that intelligence is not an otios affair nor yet a mere preliminary to a spectator-like apprehension of terms and propositions in so far as it is idealistic to hold that objects of knowledge in their capacity of distinctive objects of knowledge are determined by intelligence it is idealistic it believes that faith in the constructive the creative competency of intelligence was the redeeming element in historic idealism lest however we be misled by general terms the scope and limit of this idealism must be formulated one its distinguishing trait is that it defines thought or intelligence by function by work done by consequences effected 
it does not start with a power an entity or substance or activity which is ready-made thought or reason and which as such constitutes the world thought intelligence is to it just a name for the events and acts which make up the processes of analytic inspection and projected invention and testing which have been described these events these acts are wholly natural they are realistic they comprise the sticks and stones the bread and butter the trees and horses the eyes and ears the lovers and haters the sighs and delights of ordinary experience thinking is what some of the actual existences do they are in no sense constituted by thinking on the contrary the problems of thought are set by their difficulties and its resources are furnished by their efficacies its acts are their doings adapted to a distinctive end two the reorganization the modification effected by thinking is by this hypothesis a physical one thinking ends in experiment and experiment is an actual alteration of a physically antecedent situation in those details or respects which called for thought in order to do away with some evil to suffer a disease and to try to do something for it is a primal experience to look into the disease to try and find out just what makes it a disease to invent or hypothecate remedies is a reflective experience to try the suggested remedy and see whether the disease is helped is the act which transforms the data and the intended remedy into knowledge objects and this transformation into knowledge objects is also affected by changing physical things into physical means speaking from this point of view the decisive consideration as between instrumentalism and analytic realism is whether the operation of experimentation is or is not necessary to knowledge the instrumental theory holds that it is analytic realism holds that even though it were essential in getting knowledge or in learning it has nothing to do with knowledge itself and hence nothing to do with the known object that it makes a change only in the knower not in what is to be known and for precisely the same reason instrumentalism holds that an object as a knowledge object is never a whole that it is surrounded with and enclosed by things which are quite other than objects of knowledge so that knowledge cannot be understood in isolation or when taken as mere beholding or grasping of objects that is to say while it is making the sick man better or worse or leaving him just the same which determines the knowledge value of certain findings of fact and certain conceptions as to mode of treatment so that by the treatment they become definite knowledge objects yet improvement or deterioration of the patient is other than an object of cognitive apprehension its knowledge object phase is a selection in reference to prior reflections so the laboratory experiment of a chemist which brings to a head a long reflective inquiry and settles the intellectual status of its findings and theorizings thereby making them into cognitive concerns or terms and propositions is itself much more than a knowledge of terms and propositions and only by virtue of this surplusage is it even contemplative knowledge he knows say ten when he has made ten into an outcome of his investigating procedures but ten is much more than a term of knowledge putting the matter in a slightly different way logical as distinct from naive realism confuses means of knowledge with objects of knowledge 
The means are twofold. They are a. The data of a particular inquiry so far as they are significant because of prior experimental inquiries. And b. They are the meanings which have been settled in consequence of prior intellectual undertakings. On the one hand, particular things or qualities as signs. On the other, general meanings as possibilities of what is signified by given data. Our physician has in advance a technique for telling that certain particular traits, if he finds them, are symptoms, signs, and he has a store of diseases and remedies in mind, which may possibly be meant in any given case. From prior reflective experiments he has learned to look for temperature, for rate of heartbeats, for sore spots in certain places, to take specimens of blood, sputum, of membrane, and subject them to cultures, microscopic examinations, etc. He has acquired certain habits, in other words, in virtue of which certain physical qualities and events are more than physical, in virtue of which they are signs or indications of something else. On the other hand, this something else is a somewhat not physically present at the time. It is a series of events still to happen. It is suggested by what is given, but is no part of the given. Now, in the degree in which the physician comes to the examination of what is there, with a large and comprehensive stock of such possibilities or meanings in mind, he will be intellectually resourceful in dealing with a particular case. They, the concepts or universals of the situation, are, together with the sign capacity of the data, the means of knowing the case in hand. They are the agencies of transforming it, through the actions which they call for, into an object an object of knowledge, a truth to be stated in propositions. But since the professional, as distinct from the human, knower is particularly concerned with the elaboration of these tools, the professional knower, of which the class philosopher presents of course one case, ungenerously drops from sight the situation in its integrity, and treats these instrumentalities of knowledge as objects of knowledge. Each of these aspects, signs and things signified is sufficiently important to deserve a section on its own account end of chapter one sections one through four